0: .NET Rocks episode 645 with guest Scott Millett. Recorded live Monday, March 7th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.NET, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. If this is your first show, uh, you got a lot of catching up to do. There's six hundred and
1: forty-four of these before this.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Where you been? Uh, we've been here for years, haven't we, Richard? <laughs> years and years. Welcome to .NET Rocks. And for those old friends, welcome back. Hey man, let's uh let's get right into Better Know Framework, because I got a story for you. Oh. All right, I love the music. Oh, yeah. However, what do you got? Hit me. Well, all right. So uh, so I started doing some Windows Phone development, and I installed the tools, you know, developer.windowsphone.com, I believe it is, nice, right? Nice,
1: yeah. And I'm liking the fact that, you know, your Silverlight skills are expanding. You're including
0: more platforms. That's right. hmm And then I get this email that, oh, my God, there's VBNet support now for oh. building Windows Phone apps. Okay. Yes. So is at your heart, you're a VBNet guy. I dream in VBNet. I like VB.NET. I'm sorry. <laughs> Deal with it. Suck it down. Suck it up. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so I go and I because I have been writing them in C sharp and it's fine. I love C sharp. C sharp is a great language, but I I love me some XML literals is what it comes down to. I just love the XML support in VB.NET, which is not in C sharp. So, um. So I install all the new tools, and I uninstall my old tools, which it turns out I think I installed the day before the new version came out. Figures. Of the SDK. Yeah. So I uninstall everything, and I install the, the, the new SDK. I install the VB support, and then there's like a service pack or something, and then there's a patch. So I install them all, and I go to use my develop my Windows Phone application and I go to access a web service in VBNet. I go, okay. I put in, you know, the service reference, the Asmx file, and it I think it generates a proxy, but then I go and I try to access that in my code and it can't find the namespace for the proxy that's created. Hmm. So then I go and I I expand Visual Studio to show all files, and I look at reference.vb, which is where the proxy is generated. It's got two lines of code, basically option strict on, option explicit on. In other words, nothing, nothing, no class, no nothing. So now I'm all perplexed, and I I bing it around a little bit and try to find an answer. I don't find an answer. So then I remembered a little rule in the back of my mind that I had forgotten to observe. And the rule goes like this, folks. When you reinstall something or you install a series of tools, install them in the order that they were released. There you go. What I did was I went back and I put on the patch from the knowledge base and everything worked fine. I installed the patch from the Knowledge Base before I installed the VB support. Now, how much are you summarizing here? How long did you tear your hair out? Oh, it was hours. It was hours. It was two to three hours. Right. So I can save you two to three hours just by reminding everybody to follow this rule. When you're installing a series of things to support a feature or whatever... Always install, and this goes for anything. When you're installing Windows, when you're installing Office, install products in the in the order that they were released by release date. It's not always easy to find the release date, but at the very least, you can you know look up uh, Bing or Google for announcements of products that were released, and you will get the date on that article. And that that is a, at the very least what you can go by. Save yourself some grief. A lot of grief. A tip from my friend. It's good advice. There you go. Richard, what uh what on earth are they saying about us now? Uh nothing true. I I had to read this email
1: because the subject line was thanks for all the fish.
0: <laughs> I love this email. You only get you only get
1: <laughs> one. You, this only works once. Don't bother and, writing another one if you know, there's I'm, one.
0: I'm 43 now and no longer the answer to everything. <laughs> <laughs> but for a year there, I was. For a was, year there, things were I pretty was, good. I was the answer to everybody's problems.
1: <laughs> uh, let me read this to you. Okay. I have been listening to Don and Rocks for quite some time now and has always found the show to be insightful and engaging. Recently, though, I have felt a powerful call to action after I listened to his show. I have an uncontrollable need to increase my knowledge about the subject discussed and then apply it to some real world or made up scenario. I've been a software developer for 13 years now, and have always had a need to continually increase my knowledge and skill, but I've always let commitments and life limit my ability to push my comfort zone. It is all too easy in our industry to put on the blinders and just do your work, but it is absolutely amazing what you find when you pull your head out of the sand. Yes. Your show has been an inspiration to me, and my only complaint is that you give me too many ideas to follow up on. (laughs) There just doesn't seem to be enough hours in the day. The last few shows that really piqued my interest were 628 Phil Japixi is all about BDD, 632 Doc Norton sharpens his saw, and 638 Rob Eisenberg
0: MVVMs us with
1: Caliburn.micro.
0: You know, I haven't I I enjoy a good MVVMing. <laughs> and I met Rob Eisenberg
1: at the MVP Summit. Nicest guy. Just smart the pro and he says you got a real bump from .NET Rocks. So there's awesome. a lot of downloads. Caliber Micro. It's free. It's on Coplex. Go get it. Your life will be better. That's what we do. Uh, recently, I have completely restructured how I build software and structure teams. BDD has been an unbelievably positive game changer for my clients, my team, and me. Keep up the great work, and
0: thanks for all the fish, <laughs> Paul Redman from Edmonton. Of course, that's the reference from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which. Read the book, folks. If you haven't read it, this is absolutely required reading for anyone. Uh, Anyone. And,
1: uh, Paul, thanks so much for your email. And if you've got questions, concerns, just want to say thanks to shows that matter to you because it helps us know which shows to make next. Send us an email,
0: at Franklins.net or, and, and comments on the website. That's right, dotterrocks.com. Go to the show. Leave a comment. Do you know what Windows phone app I'm writing in VBNet? What are you writing, my friend? I'm writing a .NET Rocks app. Cool. I'm writing an app that will automatically download the new shows and let you scroll through and see our guests' lovely faces and read their bios and essentially just play any show you want. Awesome. It'll stream it right there or it'll... uh, Or it'll download it and store it on your phone. Great. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Well, Richard, I'm really excited because our guest is none other than Scott Millett. And Scott is an enterprise software architect working in London for wiggle.co.uk, an e-commerce company specializing in cycle and triathlete sports. He's been working with .NET since version 1.0 he was awarded the asp.net mvp award in 2010 and again in 2011. He's written several books around the .net platform. For rocks, he's written *N Hibernate with ASP.NET Problem Design Solution, uh, Professional Enterprise.net, Professional ASP.NET Design Patterns. For Apress, he's written Pro with Scrum and XP. And uh, realworldnet World Four in C Sharp: Indispensable Experiences from Fifteen .NET and C Sharp MVPs. Um, welcome, Scott. Who this last book? Real World Four in C Sharp. What, uh, who is the publisher on that one?
2: And uh, that's rocks. It's, it's, I think it's out uh, later this year, so maybe just after summer.
0: You know, this has been um, sort of a, a mantra for me and Richard that we are trying to get more stories from the field about... Yeah, yeah. And, and that seems like, a, as the title says, indispensable uh, to get other people's <laughs> experiences. I'm hoping you'll share some of those with us today.
2: Well, I, I, I hope to, yeah.
0: Well, that sounds great. And, and that, is that the latest book? Uh, it says... Or that one has not yet been written.
2: Yeah, neither the, 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 the A-Press one, I'm still in the process of writing, and the, uh, the MVP one, I contributed a chapter on what we're going to talk to about today, hopefully, about BDD and, and SpecFlow.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Have we ever talked about spec particularly, Richard? I don't think so. We talked about spec sharp, I remember that. Yes, not the same thing at all. Not the same thing at all. So tell us about spec flow.
2: Uh, Well, SpecFlow is a framework uh, to allow you to drive your your development using uh, acceptance criteria uh, defined by your business users or or your BAs. So it's based on a a product from the Ruby guys called Cucumber. And Cucumber gives you the ability to, in a natural language, specify behaviors uh, in your system, so following the given when then um, template. So you start with, you know, to... Traditionally, in an agile uh, methodology, you would gather features using user stories. Right. So, as a, uh, in order to achieve some goal as a, um, a, a customer, I should be, well, if we take an example, in order to um, uh, buy, purchase items from a website as a customer, I'd like to add them first to my basket. So, this is your feature. This is what your, your, you know, your end user wants you to, uh, to develop.
0: Right. This is what we talked in, in detail to Phil Japixi about, uh, basic BDD practice.
2: That's it, yeah. So by using SpecFlow, you can uh, take those uh, scenarios, of given when then, and put them straight into your source code and kind of drive your development from there. So you write them, you know, in a, in a, in a very natural language. Specflow then parses the, uh, the scenarios and the, and, and the features you're working against. It'll do some magic and hook up some, some code and you basically just write the step definitions. So it's, it's BDD straight from kind of your user acceptance tests. Yeah. So it, it, it kind of uh, builds hooks that you can write code against and then you can kind of drive into your development from there. From from basically it, it supports the, the kind of acceptance driven methodology or, or outside end approach. And, it, and it, it it makes you it, it's very good at focusing on behavior and also it it it, it acts as a kind of living, organic, ever changing kind of documentation to to the behaviors of your system.
0: Okay. And uh, this is at specflow.org, right?
2: Yes, I believe it's spec yes, that's right, specflow.org.
0: Okay. Is this a free tool?
2: Yes, it's free,
0: yep, open source. Fantastic. So I'm looking at this, um, and it's great that this website is very good. It's simple. It gets to the heart of what SpecFlow is, and it has a screenshot which shows this little card, and just in plain text, the word feature, colon, score calculation. In order to know my performance, and the next line, as a player, on the next line, I want the system to calculate my total score. So you're saying that that English can actually turn into a, a skeleton code?
2: Yeah. So so as soon as you save the the feature file, it's called uh, the um, specflow will parse it and it will set up some expectations of some spec definition. So each of the scenarios for the feature, um, each of those the, the given when then is a scenario. So. Each of the lines in a given when then are steps. So SpecFlow parses the each scenario, and then produces some skeleton code that you basically have to fill in the gaps. So you write the the um, use something like NUnit um, to write your uh, assertions on the on the different
1: steps. Basically,
0: wow! Well, that's powerful.
1: So, what yeah, happens when you start modifying things like I'm just sort of dealing with the iterations of you know we change our requirements, how does that reflect it in the code we change our code how's that reflected in the requirements that whole give and take
2: yeah well i mean if you're if you're doing t d d or b d d correctly your your tests are first class citizens and and you should make sure you refactor them and, and and build them in such a way that when inevitably requirements do change that you're able to kind of easily uh, manage your tests and if you know if features change you you can um, modify your test code appropriately but um because the way that is developed all the steps are basically get, get created as separate methods so you can use regular expressions to annotate the the steps mm. so that you can reuse code so you might have um, uh, many scenarios for a feature. So you might be, you know, checking for edge cases. What happens if you put a thousand objects in your basket? What happens if you change your quantity to minus one? And you don't have to, re, you don't have to write extra code for that. You just parameterize and use regular expressions to reuse steps. So it, it, it's quite effective.
0: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com Telerik. So, Scott, what is it I need to install to get SpecFlow up and
1: running? Is it integrated with Studio in a particular way? Is there versioning issues? Like, what's that all about?
2: So, so first of all, uh, it, 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 it integrates with Visual Studio. So, if you go to the SpecFlow.org website, you can download an MSI, and and that will then give you uh, the kind of the SpecFlow features. So when you're adding a new feature or a step definition you'll you know you get the the integration with 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 visual studio um, It also makes sure that the 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 runner that parses the file is integrated with visual studio but it's it's very quickly very fast to download very quick to install and 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 it and it comes with an example so you can be up and running within minutes
1: Oh very cool it's cool and I see here on the uh of the site Steve Sanderson's involved as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think he because he, he was blogging about it not too long ago, and it might even be in his uh, his new NBC book.
1: Cool. What is it about these UK folks and BDD? There's there's several really talented people working in this space.
2: Well, well, there's, there's only a handful of developers in the UK. We all we all kind of like meet up in a pub and, and discuss what <laughs> we should be uh, all chatting about. So we we make sure we all, we're all talking the same language.
0: Well, here's a question. So. You uh, you create your scenarios and SpecFlow executes them. Um, how long does that persist into the life of your project? At some point, do you do you just take over into real code, or do these turn right into uh, do do these tests stay in the project for the for the life of the project?
2: so so basic, so if you're if you're doing acceptance driven development or outside in you, you start at the, the point of the user so these are really your acceptance criteria yeah so you um so, so yeah that these are be and then you know they they start as your to drive the design of your system and then later that they, they, they sit there as, as, as regression tests
0: so um, do you still have access to that i guess what i'm saying is do you still have access to that plain text Yes, oh, absolutely. That. Yeah. Oh, okay,
2: that's right. So it's so it's a lot easier to to uh, you know um, one of the benefits of TDD is it is it acts as a kind of um, an up to date uh, documentation, but it's very difficult to you know, just scanning code to read you know one line of kind of like underscored uh, method names. However, in this yeah. kind of language, because it is plain text, although it does follow the given the when then template, it's very easy to to, to understand what is. You know what the kind of behavior the system is, and also it's the actual language of your customer or your your business analyst. Um, it's, the, it's their language, so immediately you can you can kind of you can have conversations about um, you, the, the source code, and your, your customer is on the same level level as you because he's the one that's basically written these.
0: Okay, can we uh, talk a little bit about um, well? not just your book, but uh, the Design Patterns book, but about design patterns in ASP.NET. Mm -hmm. um, When I think of uh, design patterns in ASP.NET, I guess you're talking about... um, Are you talking about using the sort of the web forms approach or are you talking about um, MVC or MVVM, all of those things?
2: Yeah, so uh, all of those things. So it's basically... um you don't have to. I mean, Microsoft ASP.NET .NET MVC framework is, is their implementation of the MVC um, pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to. You know, you can still do loosely coupled code and you know maintainable, flexible, reusable code in in web forms. Mm-hmm. You can follow. You can create your own MVC framework or, or follow a or a more MVP approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the kind of books about applying the Gang of Four patterns, Fowler's Enterprise Patterns, um, and the kind of Uncle Bob's Solid Design Principles, and showing how, you know, no matter if you do a and a, if it, if it's an ASP.NET Web Form application or a, a ASP.NET MVC, you can still you know use sure. these patterns because they're the you know they're not only the language agnostic but they're kind of asp.net framework agnostic as well.
0: A singleton is a singleton is a singleton no matter where you're exactly, writing yeah. it but yeah. uh, I guess maybe you're talking about um practical applications of these design patterns in asp.net.
2: Yeah, that's right. And yeah. even though um you might be using the kind of asp.net nbt framework and and, and it, you know you've got the kind of uh, great kind of code and uh Kind of pattern built into it. If, if you know, you can still easily get it wrong. So it's important to understand the fundamentals behind, you know, what, what these kind of uh, solution templates going kind to of give you, and, and and what kind of problems they can help you solve.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, this has come up a couple of times, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, Scott. When do you think <laughs> is the right time for a developer to start learning design patterns? And uh, the well, sort of backstory here was this idea that in hindsight, we always feel like we should have learned them sooner, and yet, mm-hmm. until you've built some software and have some context, design patterns just don't seem to mean much.
2: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think uh, I find um, it's easier for me now to refactor to design patterns. So get the get whatever I'm working on working, and then kind of refactor to more elegant solution. So. Um, so yeah, so basically, if you if you never have as a young developer, you, you're you know you're, you're coding in a way, and then you'll get to some point where you have to kind of maintain some legacy code you wrote six months earlier. And it's at that point you think, mm, well, maybe maybe there's a better way I can kind of code this, or you know, because I'm I'm going to have to maintain it going forward. So I guess it's that point. It's the it's the point when you realise that you know maybe there's a better way to to code. Is probably the time you you're you know you're you go to Amazon and and, and pick up a, a the design patterns bible we'll and start and start going through it that, at that point.
1: I like that core concept though yeah. that that design patterns are what you refactor to, not what you build yeah. at initially.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the um, uh, traps people fall into, and, and myself included, is when you kind of learn about design patterns. I mean, I mean, people are doing design patterns anyway. But then when they learn about them, they try to apply them to everything. And right. it's only when you kind of get more experience with them, you realize, you know, you go back to the way you were coding. But, but, um, and you kind of apply them when necessary, not, you know, you, you don't try to kind of use as many as you can in, in each project.
0: Right.
1: Yeah, no, that's an interesting way to go about it. And And certainly you get into this, I have I've learned how to use a hammer and everything's going to be a male goddammit. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, hey, that's right, Tell yeah.
0: me tell me the story that you submitted to this uh book on uh in indispensable experience from the field.
2: Oh, okay. So, so this was about um using uh, basically about driving development using user stories and BDD and outside in development and, and using that, look the framework like a um uh, spec flow. so it was a, It was about kind of focusing on it, it was it was i think it was a kind of me coming out from a kind of you know I've, I've learned about tdd however when starting a new project where do i start so i know i've got to do tests first but i, I don't know where to start so it was kind of like thinking well you know if you come out from a more of behavior driven uh perspective. You kind of focus on what you're trying to achieve and, and you, you focus on the behavior of the system and then you kind of discover the lower level, um, details of the application of the lower, you know, you use TDD then to discover, you know, uh, the exact components, but, but focusing on, on the behavior of the system and, 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 and you know, from, from user stories and from requirements, gathering, because that's when application design starts. It's from talking to the user, understanding their problem and then kind of, making sure that that's always at the forefront of your mind. So using BDD and, and tools like SpecFlow help to focus your efforts from the kind of the outside, from, from what your users want to get out of it. And then you can kind of dive in and, and use TDD to kind of discover the lower-level concerns and, and, and the services and the dependent classes and so components that kind of all work together to make your application run.
0: Is that something you learned from experience on the job?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very difficult, always, always difficult to to kind of because um, when, when you're you're doing TDD, you're starting off this, you you kind of lose sight, you can't see the wood for the trees. So you so you're you're testing smaller, you, you know, you need to test small objects. But if you if you forget the direction you're heading in, um, you can kind of you kind of uh, code in needless complexity. But if you just take a step back and focus on the behaviour, and come at it at that point of view, you will always kind of you, you, it helps you. It guides you, basically. So, you, you, so you know exactly uh, what direction you're going in, and, and 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 when you've done enough, I guess.
0: So, um, I guess I'm I'm really interested in hearing some scenarios that um, that you may have picked up from being on the job or at a customer site, where uh, you know the application of a pattern has occurred to you. Um, uh, you know, just uh, something something from your real world experience.
2: Okay, um, well, we recently started uh, uh, localising our site, so uh, um, accepting uh, uh, it's an e-commerce site, so, it, um, so we started accepting kind of Japanese yen and lots of different currencies across the world. Okay. And so, in order to, to, to kind of. Um, Kind of cope with that and, and with, with the different currencies comes different exchange rates. We had to, we had our kind of our, our, our project product rather entity and, and this had a price entity because a price could have a discount and, you know, a savings and a, and a special price if you're a gold member, this kind of stuff. So we would, we would kind of, we needed to, to, this price to evolve, um, if you're a Japanese customer looking at it and you wanted to see the price in yen or if you're from Europe and you want to see it in euros. So we're thinking, well, how can we, how can we kind of um, add this new behavior to this kind of price class? And then as we were chatting about it, we said, well, what, what we're trying to do, and we, we really, you know, we're really we're trying to think fundamentally what we were trying to tr- achieve, and what it was, we, we were basically we trying to decorate the price with various c- currencies, and through kind of talking to each other and using kind of fundamental terms. We we you know we came up with this, the, the 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 concept the idea of a decoration, and um, which is itself a design pattern. Uh-huh. So design patterns are uh, named in such a manner that they kind of they're self descriptive, I guess. So yeah. it, so they should naturally come up if you're having if you have a design problem, uh, and you and you talk it out and you, you talk about the fundamentals of the problem you're having. Uh, hopefully naturally the the kind of design pattern should have just emerged through through the conversation and and that's what we found it did so that's where that's one occasion where we, we we talked the problem through and the the kind of design pattern emerged and 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 we implemented it from there.
0: Ah very cool so and was it was it an attribute decoration in this case? Yeah well,
2: yeah, well uh, because the price had a um there was many kind of attributes to the price. We we kind of decorated the whole class, so the the client code uh, didn't need to change. It was it was still looking at a, an abstraction, so it, it you know it didn't need to know that there was a um, a currency decorator um, or a or a you know special offer price decorator on that. So basically, every, all the code worked um, as normal.
1: I just like the I like the the language you used there. That that the pattern emerged. This is not like you're thumbing through a book. It's it's very much like this collaborative discussion.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So, well, uh, the the design patterns, uh, if you learn them all, um, they they kind of uh, help you in your kind of design vocabulary, I guess. So, when you're trying to um, talk about complex systems or how your how your designed, if you use um, well-known pattern names, you can you can basically. Uh, Describe a, a complex piece of functionality in in relatively easily, it, as long as the other people understand uh, standard, the the concept you're getting across. So it's a bit like carpenters. When when you know when carpenters are building a a, um, a chair, they won't say, "Oh, we're, we're going to do some grooves here and, and fit this in there. They'll, they'll speak to each other and say, "Oh, we'll do a dovetail joint here," and because it, it's a common uh, design uh term in the world of carpentry everyone knows what's going on there's no confusion and and it's the same thing in in uh, software development
1: yeah they and it's funny the the sort of recognized language that we have the singletons and
2: exactly and yeah
1: the idea of of class and object you know the regular mortals don't get what we're talking about
0: <laughs> right
2: that's right. That's right. But that's why it's important to, uh, you know, to learn design patterns. Um, You know, throughout your daily life, uh, you know, you'll only probably uh, um, apply one or two. But because they're kind of uh, um, solutions used by many other people, by experts, cataloged so that they work, and they're also built upon, you know, it's very fundamental design principles, loosely coupled and, and good object oriented um, uh, facets, you know by using them and by applying them, you're gonna, your code will be hopefully infinitely better.
0: Right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at InRule. Hey, Coding Ninja, what if your business users could update their own decision logic, but you still had control over how it's used? With InRule, the only business rule technology built for .NET, you can reduce hard coding and change requests. InRule is extensible and customizable. Developers get a rich SDK and an extensible framework. Business users get integration with Word and a Microsoft Office-like UI. Visit InRule.com for a free trial download and see for yourself why another coding ninja calls InRule the best investment in software we've ever made. Check out InRule Technologies' link on our website at .netrocks.com.
1: I want to jump back to SpecFlow a bit here. I'm presuming this product doesn't stand on its own. Is there other tools you like to use with it? Well, I
2: use um, SpecFlow for my um, acceptance-driven uh, kind of part. So I, w- when I'm working on a project, I'll, I'll split the testing into three kind of uh, mini-projects. One will be the acceptance uh, tests, which, because I, I predominantly work in a uh, uh, web uh, web world, so we have SpecFlow working with a product called um, Watin, um, which is a kind of browser runner, a bit like Selenium. And so we'll have SpecFlow, we'll launch the, we we'll use Wattin to launch the the uh, a web application, um, click a couple of buttons, and make assertions that. When I click Add to Basket, then I should see um, this product in my basket. So I use so SpecFlow, NUnit, and Watin for, for that uh, um, for the acceptance test. Then I use MSpec, which is another kind of BDD runner, for my uh, unit test. So I'll I'll I start my development by driving design with my acceptance test. Once I understand kind of the API that I'm working against, I will then drop into MSpec in my unit test project to run a kind of you know to basically kind of fill out and discover the lower level objects, um, and then I I might use MUnit as well there.
1: So MUnit, M MSpec. I'm I'm familiar right, with yeah. Watton but that's just I've done a ton of web stuff, and it's really quite a nice set of free tools for for yeah, web yeah, testing. Lovely. Uh, tell us a little bit more about MSpec. Uh, you know, it, it's related. It seems like, why would I need both mSpec and SpecFlow?
2: Well, mSpec is uh, it, it's more, um, I guess, SpecFlow. SpecFlow is easier to capture. Um, sorry, to, it's easier for you to turn your kind of acceptance criteria and put it into your code base. Where mSpec is, you could use it for any part. So you can you can use it when you're kind of working out whether you should use a hash table or a, or a... You know, a, um, a dictionary object to, to kind of store, and it, it, it's that at that lower level. Whereas, kind of spec flow is kind of the, the higher level, uh, where you're not, you know, you, you don't concern yourself with kind of infrastructure. Um, and and uh, MSpec is a lot lighter weight, it's a lot faster to get to get up to speed with. Um, yeah, they're, they're both good. Uh, they're both good. To do the, do the same job with them, but I do find spec flows a lot. Uh, more suited, I guess, to kind of acceptance-driven testing.
1: Well, it strikes me that that SpecFlow is the tool you use with the domain experts and the business owner to work exactly, through yeah. language they are really comfortable with. Yes, and and N-Spec seems much more like an internal tool. This is when I get amongst the devs again. Yeah, we could <laughs> we could we play in EnSpec in and everybody's happy.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, sometimes it, it depends on what I'm doing, but sometimes. It, you know, I could use n unit for projects or n or, or spec, but certainly um, I use uh, SpecFlow to, to kind of uh, start the process off and take kind of the um, the user acceptance criteria as a starting point for my development.
1: And and I'm worried, Scott, here just because I I get concerned when we have tests in lots of different places.
2: Yeah, well. Um, Typically, my acceptance tests will uh, take longer to run. Um, So they're kind of like full end-to-end testing. So, you know, start a browser, hit the database, uh, logging, do all this kind of stuff. So it's it's a full end-to-end kind of feature test, whereas my uh, unit tests are just testing small uh, small, uh, units of behavior. So I'll want my acceptance test maybe to run once a day and my unit test to run every time I uh, do a build, basically. So that's why I, I like to keep them separate because it, it's just quicker to run to, uh, quicker to run the test, basically.
1: Right, so it's really sort of the class of tests that selects the tool.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can, yeah, I choose to use uh, Projects to separate them, but you can use namespaces and keep them in the same uh, yeah. same project. And it's, it's the same with integration tests. So again, because that's testing against databases and, or web services or or something like that, it might take a, a while to run. So and, a, and a, you know, it'd take a lot of setup and teardown. Um, so maybe I don't, I don't necessarily want to run that all the time. So that's why I would separate those out.
1: Yeah, and, and of course, there's some overlap here, right? I mean, these tools all could do each other's tests to some degree. So I'm really trying yeah. to get straight the organizational part of what do I do where?
2: Absolutely. So, so the best tool to do the job, and, and, and it's a good idea as well to, to have you know to, to, to experiment with lots of tools because you know one thing that works for somebody maybe not uh, maybe not work work for someone else, and uh, you know there's lots of different kind of testing frameworks out there. So, so it's a good idea, good idea, excuse me, to uh, to have a play around with them and, and see what one best fits your scenario.
0: Right. So, here's a question for you. Or, uh, have you ever hit a brick wall with SpecFlow?
2: Um, I've not hit a brick wall. I, I find it very easy uh, to use for web applications. I've been, you know, I'm very comfortable using it for that. Um, sometimes it, it, it can be a bit big if you know if you don't if you're not doing a, like a, a large application, maybe, and maybe you just want to get running fast. Um, this just goes back to making sure your 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 tests are well written and. Well maintainable, um, but, but no, I, I found it. I found it fine. I've not hit a brick wall as yet. I think it's because it's, it's based on the the, the the cucumber for Ruby, so so it's had a yeah. it's, it's been out a while and, and been you know some it, evolution.
0: It's actually mature.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's the word I was struggling for.
0: So I guess if you follow the rules, you're you're going to be fine.
2: Well, that that. that the same old adage in uh, software development if, if you're doing if something's too hard or you're hitting a brick wall then you're either probably doing something wrong or you're or you're you haven't understand the requirements or you're, you're trying to push a round peg into a square hole or something like that so uh, you know a lot of the frameworks if you use them in the correct way that they were meant to be used for then um, then you, you should be successful so I guess it's uh, I guess it's, it goes back to the point of Making sure you've got more than a hammer in your in your tool belt.
0: <laughs> Is there a point at which a project could be too big to handle? Spec flow?
2: Well, well, no, because you're, you're, any project you work on, you you have to uh, you got to you got you got to start by working from acceptance criteria. So you need some kind of runner um, uh, to test your project okay. and, and uh, product. And, but, I mean, if you're, I mean, we have a, we have a problem at work, say, when our um, when our solutions uh, take more than 10 minutes to build, then we split, subdivide them and split them up in, into their kind of um, bounded context yeah. uh, and kind of like go through it
1: that way. You know, it just sort of hit me that this is one of those tools that helps you not look like you're blue skying when you're blue skying.
0: Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> That whole, I got my feet on the desk and I'm waving my hands or staring off into space and people wonder why have am, am I actually get any work done. Because <laughs> in the blue sky phase where we're still just arguing through what the heck this thing's supposed to do and we're just thinking about it, this captures that in a way that looks like work.
2: Yeah, yeah, it does. And it, it does. It really does help you kind of focus on the behavior that, of the system you're, you're developing and it really kind of thinks, right... Because you know it, it puts the acceptance criteria at the forefront of your mind. Right. So you're you're you know you're subscribing to the you ain't going to need it principle, and you are you're, you're focused squarely on delivering the, the features of the system.
1: Basically, I guess I'm, I'm battling with how many of these do you end up with in a successful project? I wonder if there's a threshold, sort of minimum maximum.
2: So, so they're based on um, uh, user stories or features. So right. It, um, it depends on how many features your your system has, um, and a lot of the time, not all features are are you know some features are report kind of based, so maybe you wouldn't you wouldn't use them for that. Um, but I, I use them. I'll write a, a spec a spec flow feature for each of my um, kind of user stories or, right. or user features.
1: But it, does it actually break out nicely into one per?
2: Well, yeah, because there, there are a one-to-one match. So you have a so. I mean, if I was building a, an e-commerce site, um, one of my features would be that I need to store items for a wish list or something. So I yeah. would have a uh, maybe that use story is a bit too large, but I would have a, have a have a story to say that I could manage my list, my wish list, and then I'd have different scenarios for educators on that. And yeah, I, I, it normally matches one-to-one. If you find it, it's it's too. Um, if you have too many, then maybe your your initial user story was maybe too large to start with
1: right you you the old epic concept mm-hmm. right make the exactly. app work, not a good user story
2: <laughs> as a user, I'd like a, an app to make me loads of money yeah.
1: <laughs> I want that app too. let me know, preferably with a big red button,
0: <laughs> well, Scott, we're coming down to the end, I think, and uh is there anything else that you want us to uh talk about before anything else we didn't cover?
2: No, I think, I think it did really
0: well. All right, that's awesome. Tell us uh, where your blog is. Uh, it's
2: www.lbandit.co.uk, so that's e l b a n d i tcouk
0: Awesome. Scott Mill, it's been great to have you here, and uh, thanks, and good luck with all your books.
2: Well, thanks uh, for having me, and uh, yes, I <laughs> hope they do well. All
0: right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rock.